As a church, we've been going through the book of Hebrews uh, for the better part of the last year, and it's been a really rich study. It's been a very thorough and in-depth study going through the book of Hebrews, and actually, I'm, I'm excited to announce we have fewer than 10 sermons left in the book of Hebrews. Can you believe that? Uh, so we're going to be wrapping up Hebrews this fall. Let me give you just a brief uh, little overview of kind of what's coming up with the sermon schedule here through the remainder of this year and a little bit into next year. So starting next week, we're going to push pause on Hebrews for, for three weeks. We've got some really good friends of mine who are coming, some, some uh, pastors, those who are church planters, actually churches that we have been for the last year supporting financially, really looking forward to seeing um, these pastors come and speak to our church. And so that's going to happen for most of August, then we'll pick back up the book of Hebrews, we'll finish the book of Hebrews, we'll finish that up in October, mid-October, then for October through November, we're going to do a topical sermon series, and uh, still fiddling with the title on this a little bit, but basically looking at issues of social justice, looking at issues of uh, engaging in the culture with issues like uh, caring for the poor, uh, adoption, foster, caring for widows, looking at issues of race, you know, so like a real easy, mellow sermon series that we're going to get into in the fall. Uh, and then that will launch us into the Advent season. We're going to have a few weeks of, of looking at uh, the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. And then by God's grace, we as the elder team, we're still discussing these things, but we're hoping to, in January, launch into the book of Judges. And so that will be our next sermon series coming up uh, by God's grace in the new year. So we're still, we're still kind of uh, tweaking some of those things. We'll, we'll communicate more specifics as we go, but just want to give you guys a little bit of a heads up since it's kind of the, the summertime and people have been kind of asking where we're headed and what we're doing. But for today, guess what? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. I'd like to read these verses and then pray and spend some time together unpacking them. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, which is living and active. God, this is not just an ancient book of wise principles, but, but God, this is actually life. This is food. This is truth. God, today as we gather together to open our, our hearts, to open our ears, to open our minds to the scriptures, God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, I, I pray as I do every week that you would guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth. And God, for each and every one of us, give us a soft and a teachable heart. And God, in particular today, would you stir within us a fire and a passion, a desire to do what this passage calls us to do, to run the race that you have set before us with endurance, looking to Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 
You know, it's a good time to be a sports fan. Is anybody in here a sports fan? Okay. Yeah, Steve, is anybody here a sports fan? All right. (laughs) The guy with multiple Seahawks tattoos in the front row. It's a good time to be a sports fan. We have baseball season is in full swing, and we're now getting into kind of the the hunt for the playoffs. And you guys, guess what? The Mariners are not mathematically out of it. That is a miracle in and of itself. Uh, It's it's summertime. Baseball is in full swing. Uh, Guess what started yesterday? Seahawks training camp. That's right. Uh, If you're into more like alternative sports, we had the CrossFit Games were just uh, a week ago. I I know, I think Pastor Travis mentioned something about them last weekend. I love that. Uh, If you are uh, looking forward to the Olympics, that starts, I think it's like a week, right? The Olympics start really soon. Uh, Soccer, there is no off season, so I'm sure that's going on right now somewhere. Uh, Always some sort of tournament happening. It's a good time to be a sports fan. And there's lots of lessons actually to be learned from sports. Many of you who are parents, you have your children playing sports because they can learn valuable life lessons like self-discipline or teamwork. Many of you, when you were kids, you, you played sports and you still have resentment issues towards your parents to work out. But uh, you can email Pastor Shane for counseling if you need. It's fine. We, 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 we love sports. Lots of lessons to be learned from athletics. And actually, if you read the Bible... The New Testament in particular, there is a lot of imagery about sports and athletics and lots of imagery that's used. The Apostle Paul talks about things like he says, I've run my race or I press on to win the the crown, the, the wreath. You have to imagine that in this day when the New Testament was written, sports were a big deal. Sports are a big deal in our culture. Sports are a big deal in their culture as well. You have to remember that that at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the the recent history had been the Greek Empire, the Empire of Greece, where Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world. What did the Greeks give to us in terms of sports? The Olympics, absolutely. So over 2,000 years of, of athletic tradition now that we've been celebrating comes out of the ancient Greek culture. And then at the time of the writing, the, the Roman Empire had conquered the entire known world. And the Romans had things like gladiator contests and chariot races and coliseums and foot races and much of the same things that they borrowed from, uh, from the Greek culture. There were many of those types of things going on. And so when the author of Hebrews uses this language of running the race that's set before you and being surrounded by a crowd of witnesses, he's drawing on that type of imagery. So I want you to, if you will, imagine yourself walking into the arena, walking into the Colosseum. You've got, you've got a track laid out before you. You're going to run. It's a foot race. There's other competitors around you. And then the stands are, are filled with people And then there, seated in the seat of honor, there's the emperor, the emperor himself, surrounded by royalty and dignitaries and important, rich, powerful people. This is the type of imagery that the author of Hebrews wants to call to mind. We've just gotten done looking at Hebrews chapter 11, this extended list of men and women throughout the past, men and women throughout the the history of the people of God who have had to endure, who have had to run a race, who have had to press on to the end in faith, trusting that the promises of God are true. And now the author of Hebrews wants to point our attention to Jesus. He says, now look at Jesus, the ultimate example of faith. And so in light of all of this, I want you to run your race. That's really the, the big idea from today's passage. Train hard, Run well, because our champion Jesus has already secured the victory. Train hard, run well, because Jesus has already won the victory. 
It's good news already, amen? We're gonna see a few things here today as we're, as we're picturing ourselves walking into the arena, walking into the stadium to, to run this race. We're gonna see three different roles. We're gonna see the role of the crowd. So there's great crowd gathered. They have a role to play. We're gonna see our role as competitors, as athletes. We have a role to play. And then we're gonna see the role of Jesus, his role, the part that, that he has played. So that's what we're gonna see, the role of the crowd, our role, and Jesus' role. So let's do this. Let's start back in, in verse one. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who's that cloud of witnesses? What's that, what's that therefore connecting us to? The entirety of chapter 11. Throughout chapter 11, we looked at the example of all of these great men and women of God, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, all of these people, and then, and then David and Samuel and the prophets and the, the passage that, that Pastor Travis looked at last week, other unnamed people of whom the world was not worthy. This great crowd of people that have gone before, this great group of the faithful departed, those who now stand in the presence of God in heaven, in paradise, but they have run the race already. They're, they're the witnesses. And so we, we kind of look at this, what, what is their role as witnesses? And, and scholars and commentators basically say it can be interpreted in one of two ways, these witnesses. The first, the first way that they interpret it is that they're, they're witnesses in the past. Witnesses, the word is martyr, and that word martyr we often think of as being killed for your faith, and it is that, but the word martyr just originally meant a witness. So they're a witness in the past, and their role is to model and to demonstrate. How many of you know that it's really important to have models and examples to follow, right? Uh, I remember there's a stand-up comic, Mitch Hedberg, he said, I tried to teach myself to play guitar, except I didn't know how to play guitar, so I was a terrible teacher, right? I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good point. Try to teach yourself something. You know, some of you are, maybe you're skilled, maybe, you're, maybe you can you know, figure things out on your own, but at some point, you have to see somebody else do it so that you know what to do. Those of you who are artists or graphic designers, you've had to see somebody else's art and, and musicians, you, you, you imitate, you learn a, a cover song. Those of you who are engineers, you went to school and you learned how to draw blueprints and you learned how to use computer drafting or whatever it might be, whatever your, your, your hobby is or your passion is or your skill. Those of you, maybe some of you knit or you quilt or you sew clothes. Somebody had to teach you how to do that. Well, the Christian life is very similar. We need models. We need examples. We need to see what the Christian life looks like lived out. And, and here's the danger of, of not having a teacher or an example to follow. If we don't have a teacher, if we don't have an example to follow, if we don't have someone to model and demonstrate things for us, we can run a couple of risks. The first risk would be just no growth at all. We don't actually grow. We don't change. We don't learn. I've seen this in my life as a Christian. I've seen this in my time as a pastor. Someone has an experience with the Lord. Maybe they read the scriptures. Maybe they heard you know, God just speak to their heart. They say, I want to follow you, Jesus. But then they distance themselves from Christian community. They distance themselves from mature believers in the faith. And then they don't really grow. They just kind of get stuck and stagnated. It's actually fairly sad. If you don't have good models or teachers, a second risk is maybe you grow, but the growth is stunted. There's not as much growth as you could have. There's not as much Christ-likeness as there could be. Yeah, there's, there's some growth, and yeah, there's some maturing, but, but by and large, you're not living up to that high calling that Jesus has called you to. 
Or here's a third risk of not having models, not having examples to follow. A third risk is you can grow, but you can grow in the wrong direction. Kind of get sideways. Maybe an a, a, a odd idea, something that's not in line with the truth of God's word comes into your mind and you start to grow. You start to grow kind of askew. It's like a, it's like a, a tree that doesn't have a support to grow up against. It can just get kind of wonky. Is that, a, is that a word I can use, right? Wonky? Uh, you ever known any wonky Christians? They don't have good models to follow, good examples to follow. And you're like, man, they, I, they say they love Jesus. They, they say they read the Bible. But man, there's just something off. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you are thankful for someone who modeled and demonstrated Christ-like character in your life at some point, okay? Maybe you want to call them, send them a text, send them an email this week. Just thank you so much for the investment that you made in me. Thank you for showing me what it looks like to live a godly Christian life. We need witnesses from the past, modeling and demonstrating. The second way that this can be interpreted, though, some scholars and commentators think that this this is, is not just people in the past, but actually they're witnesses in the present, they're witnesses right now. These, these faithful saints who have departed, they're, they're witnessing us in the present and they're cheering us on. This language of since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, many commentators would say that that language is used intentionally to draw to mind this idea of a crowd in a coliseum or a crowd in a stadium. You walk out onto the field and there's just people all around you. You're surrounded and you know what they're doing? Come on, you can do it. a boy, let's run, let's go. You have to think, this is, this is a crowd full of people who are, who are, they've run a race before. They're faithful to Jesus. They have been faithful to Jesus, and now they're looking at us and saying, hey, you can do it. Run the race. We've, we've run our race. Now we're turning to cheer you on. You have to remember that to be a Christian is to be part of what we would call the universal church. We talk about church, sometimes we'll say lowercase c, church, like this church, Sound City Bible Church, one local church, lowercase c, but then there's capital C, church, the church, the Catholic church, if you want to use that term. The word Catholic just means universal. There's the Roman Catholic church, which is a specific expression, but the, the, the word Catholic just means the church. It's actually in the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creeds of the Christian faith. It says, I believe in the holy Catholic and apostolic church, the communion of saints. So to be a Christian means that you are connected not just with this group of believers, right? Look around the room right now. This, this is our lowercase c church, but you are connected to the capital C church. You are a part of the people of God from every nation, from every generation throughout history. Is that encouraging to you? Is it encouraging to you to know that there are literally millions and millions of other saints who have departed who are now witnessing from heaven and they are cheering us on. Now, I do believe this idea can be taken too far. (coughs) As our Roman Catholic friends do, some of you know that there's a tradition in the Roman Catholic Church for to ask the saints to help you. Uh, As Protestants, the objection would be, hey, that sounds a lot like praying to the saints. We know that you're to pray to only God alone. And the Catholic response would be, the Roman Catholic response would be, well, if, if I was to go ask my friend to just, hey, would you come pray for me? Would you help me? Would you, would you uh, walk with me through this difficult season? It's kind of the same thing. We're asking the, the saints to just pray for us. And, and I would say, yeah, well, there's a lot of other one another verses in the New Testament too, and you're not gonna ask them to do that uh, because they're dead and you need living people in your life. That's just my simple objection. Uh, living people is better than dead people. But 
the, the point is, that's like one of those just no duh statements. Living people is better than dead people. Okay, but, but the point is this. We're connected to this great people, this great crowd, this great cloud of witnesses. I want you to imagine the, the first hearers. Remember, they're facing a lot of opposition, aren't they? There were probably people, we don't know this for certain, but very likely there are people from this community, these, these early Christians who were literally dragged into a coliseum, thrown in front of an angry crowd and fed to lions or fed to bears and being put up for sport. There are Christian brothers and sisters who are hearing this letter who were put to death in front of an angry, cheering mob. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, there's a different crowd Don't be dismayed by the jeers and the taunts of those people in this stadium. I want you to picture a bigger stadium, a heavenly stadium filled with those who have gone before saying, it's going to be all right. Trust in Jesus. Your end is secure. Do you think that would have been encouraging to them? Do you think that could be encouraging to us today? How many of you as Christians, as Bible-believing Faithful to Jesus, Christians sometimes feel like we're surrounded in our culture, in our country, by a lot of taunting and jeering and mocking and discouraging sort of comments. Anybody ever felt that way? You can't hardly turn on the TV. You can't hardly read a magazine. You certainly can't read through the blogosphere without feeling like Christians are the pot shot of jokes or the butt of the punchlines in, in movies, TV. You can start to feel a little bit discouraged, can't you? I feel like there's this great crowd around us saying, you're an idiot for believing that there's a God, for believing that he created the world, for believing that he became a man, for believing that he died and then rose again on the third day. You're a fool and you believe in a fairy tale. The author of Hebrews would say to you, don't listen to that crowd. There's a greater cloud of witnesses, faithful men and women, many of whom unnamed, but he says the world is not even worthy of them. That was that passage you looked at last week. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, I want you to remember that, church. When you feel like you're ostracized, when you feel like you're alone, when you feel like you're the only person, maybe in your entire office, or the only person in your class, or the only person in your family who believes that the Bible is the word of God, who believes that Jesus is the son of God, you feel like you're alone, I just want you to remember you're part of a great crowd of witnesses. Let that be of an encouragement to you. So that's their role, to demonstrate and to model and to cheer us on. Then there's our role, picking back up in verse one. Since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus We'll come back to Jesus more in depth in a moment. Skipping ahead to verse three, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. <clears throat> let, me, let me just talk for a moment here about grace and works. Do we believe in grace? Sound City Bible Church. 
I want a more enthusiastic yes from you. Do, do we believe in grace, Sound City Bible Church? Yes. We are not saved by our efforts. We are not saved by our works. We do not gain right standing before God by anything that we have done. We are saved by a sheer act of God's amazing grace. He gets 100% of the credit. Now, that said... We do also believe in works. We are saved by sheer act of God's grace, the work that Jesus has done. But what does Ephesians say? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works that no one can boast. And it says, for, in the very next verse, don't stop too short. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he has prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. So if you are a Christian, you are saved by God's grace alone, but then you do have a part to play. As we proclaim the free grace of God, as we proclaim the amazing grace of God, my concern is that sometimes we could swing the pendulum too far and say, so don't you ever do anything. The gospel of grace is not opposed to effort. The gospel of grace is opposed to earning feeling like I've somehow worked hard enough to impress God. No, you have not worked hard enough to impress God. He just loves you. Deal with that. And then from that foundation, follow him hard. Follow him passionately. Run your race. Do you hear that distinction, friends? We're not saved by works. We don't impress God. We haven't earned anything of our own merit. It's purely by his grace. But then from that foundation, we are called into a life of pursuit of obedience of running this race so we have we have a role to play we have a role to play Uh, i I understand that sentiment you know let go and let god Uh, but at the end of the day it's more like cling to god and run really hard and try your best to keep up maybe and his grace is sufficient for all of your failures it's okay but but we do have a role to play okay So let me just talk for a moment about our role. What is it that we are called to do? The author of Hebrews says, first, slim down. Slim down, okay? Think about the analogy of an athlete. If you're gonna train for a sport, if you're gonna train for a race, one of the first things you gotta do is you gotta slim down. He says this, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's actually interesting that word lay aside, it could also be be translated as throw off. I found it interesting. It's the same word that's used in the book of Acts when the the angry Jewish leaders are gonna kill Stephen. It says they laid aside their cloaks, they threw aside their cloaks, and then they picked up rocks and they're gonna start uh, chucking them at Stephen to kill him. They they gotta get loosened up. They gotta throw off their bulky robes because, doggone it, they've got a Jesus follower to kill. Actually, uh, this is a sports-related sermon. I can mention this. I read about a, a pitcher, a, a pitcher for the White Sox this last week who didn't like the uniforms. They had these retro throwback uniforms. You guys hear about this? These retro throwback uniforms, he says, I don't like these uniforms. They're too bulky. I can't pitch in them. And so uh, in, a, in a very mature act, he took scissors to them and several of his teammates, and so then they couldn't wear them in defiance, and he got suspended for like a whole week. Now, probably not the best way to deal with it, But the point was actually interesting. He said, I can't pitch in this. I want to win. I want to be able to throw the best pitches that I can possibly throw. I want to be unencumbered by bulky uniforms, and so I'm going to, like a six-year-old, cut up these clothes in an act of defiance against the White Sox management. 
The Bible instructs us to be unencumbered. Lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Sin is like a great weight. Sin is like a, a, a bulky, uh, you know, bulky set of clothes. If you're going to try to play basketball, you wouldn't show up wearing scuba gear, would you? It would be foolish. Lay aside. You wouldn't, you wouldn't train for a race by eating ice cream and donuts every single day. You, you, would, you would understand that there's uh, something really important about what you're doing. And let me just say this. I've been speaking in terms of athletics and sports, but I need you to understand something. The Christian life is not a game. Following Jesus is not a game. It's not a hobby. It's not a pastime. It's not, a, it's not just a, a simple passion or a pleasure. This is life and death, friends. This is life and death. And can I just be real with you guys for a minute? There are so, you didn't give me permission, but I'm going to. There are, there are many Christians who put less effort into following Jesus than they do for their, you know, softball league team. There are many Christians who do not take seriously the cost of discipleship, who do not take seriously this race that we are called to run. It's not a game, friends. We are talking about matters of eternal life and death. And if I was being honest with you, there are some Christians who, if they put as much effort into a pickup game of basketball as they did in their Christian life, I wouldn't want them on my team. Where are you allowing sin to just weigh you down and you've made your peace with it? You're okay with it. You're comfortable with it. Oh, it's not hurting anyone else. Yes, it is. First of all, it's breaking the heart of God. If you are a Christian, you've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus and for you to toy around with and to play around with sin, to let that just hang on you like a weight is breaking the heart of God. Secondly, though, it's hurting you. Because you were created to flourish in Christ Jesus. You were created to have life and life abundantly, Jesus said. And for you to settle for that garbage which is weighing you down is hurting you. And guess what? It is hurting the Christian community because there are other men and women in your life who need the gifts that God has given to you and you're not putting them into practice because you're messing around with sin. Slim down. Take it seriously. Sin is not to be trifled with. It is to be put to death by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Christian community. And yes, your work, your effort, participate. The Bible says walk in step with the Spirit. That's the first thing we're supposed to do. The second thing we're supposed to do is this. Keep going. Now you've done that, keep doing that. Endure, persevere, don't grow weary or faint-hearted, the author of Hebrews says. Let us run with endurance. My dad tells me a story of when he was, I think he was in high school. He, he, my dad is even less athletic than I am. Our family of musicians, we got beat up by all the athletes growing up. He, he decided, uh, because he was insane, to just run a marathon. And, and I should point out, he had never run anything before. And he said that he, he and his friends said they're going to run this marathon. And uh, this is in Fairbanks, Alaska, in the middle of the summer where the sun doesn't ever quite go down. They have this midnight sun marathon. He said, we're going to run this midnight marathon. And he and his friends said they, the gun went off and they ran. They ran really hard for like a mile and a half. <laughs> and then there's, you know, how, what the math is, you know, 24 and a half other miles, 20, 25 miles still to run. He said they just dragged through the rest of the way. But they kept going. So good on him for that. 
Friends, we're called to run with endurance. I know it's a little bit of a Christian cliche, but it's true. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. We're running 26 miles, not a, not a 200 meter uh, dash. Count the cost, keep going. You know what, you're gonna get tired. You're going to get weary. There are going to be days where sin and laziness and apathy and folly just sounds better. Even the parallel for, for training in, 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 in our physical, our natural lives. There are days when going to the gym just sounds like the worst possible thing, but you know that it's good for you and you want to continue to do it. Friends, as Christians, keep going. Some of you are, are new Christians. You've recently made a profession of faith. You've recently been called into the family of God. I want you to know that this is for life. This is for keeps. This is the big picture. We're not going for comfort and convenience in this life. We're going for an eternal life that cannot be taken away from us. Amen? There's a, a commentator, David De Silva, puts it this way. He's talking about the people that are hearing this call. He says, what lies ahead of them that should present the primary agenda for their daily lives, the author wants them to see not improvement of their living conditions in this age, not getting ahead or getting by in this world, but rather the goal of arriving at God's eternal kingdom. It is this goal that must guide every decision along the way, even as the runner must keep his or her mind fixed on arriving at the goal, permitting nothing to distract him or her from that goal. Friends, don't settle for your best life now when you can have eternal life. Amen? Keep running. Keep persisting. Endure. You've got this great cloud of witnesses surrounding you. You've got brothers and sisters, maybe here in this room, maybe in your home, maybe in your neighborhood. You've got other Christians that want to walk with you. You need them. They need you. Endure. Keep going. Don't give up. And the author of Hebrews says that our third responsibility is this, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. It says, looking to Jesus. He says, consider him, meaning Jesus, the one who, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He actually draws the comparison. He says, in your, in your resistance of sin, your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The point is that whatever difficulties you're facing right now, Jesus has experienced worse. <laughs> Amen? I don't mean that to demean or to diminish. Some of you are going through real challenges, real struggles. I'm not putting those down. The author of Hebrews is not putting those down. He's just saying, look at what Jesus has gone through. It was worse. It was harder, more challenging, more devastating, more painful. Consider him. Friends, as you live this Christian life, what dominates your thought patterns? What dominates your mindset? Do you get discouraged by the culture which appears to be day by day increasingly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't keep your eyes on them. Do you, do you look to the example of others? Yes, absolutely. You want to learn from them, have models and examples, but, but is that ultimately where your eyes should be focused, where your heart should be focused? No. The author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I'll, 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 say, I'll say this. I'm going I'm to talk more about Jesus in a moment, but let me just say this. You are capable of much more than you think you are. 
This has actually been proven scientifically when it comes to sports and athletics. They talk about people who are, who are giving, you know, they're, they're giving their all, they're training hard. They actually have found that there's usually about 30% more that given the right motivation, people can actually achieve and accomplish. And I think that something similar is true spiritually. When it comes to your Christian walk, don't settle. Well, I just keep falling into this sin. I guess this is just kind of who I am. This is, this is my thorn in the flesh. This is my cross to bear. No, Jesus bore the cross, not you. You are capable of far more than you think you are. And, and, and maybe you can't see it. Jesus can see it. And I'd be willing to bet that if you let people know you, really, really know you, to be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable, I bet you there are other people in your life who could see it as well and who could call it out of you. Hey, you're better than this. You were made for greater things. Friends, please don't sell yourself short. Yes, we believe in the grace of God. I'm gonna land the plane hard on the grace of God in a minute, okay? Don't panic. But right now, in this moment, I want you to hear me loud and clear. Don't settle for less than what God has created you for. We've looked at the crowd, their role. We've looked at ourselves. So now let's do this. Let's follow what the author of Hebrews says. Let's look to Jesus. Because honestly, friends, that's the only way we're gonna be able to run the race and run it well. Let's look at Jesus' role. It says this in verse two. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, friends, there is so much packed into these verses. There's so much beautiful truth packed into these verses. Here's, here's Jesus' role. Jesus' role is this. He's the founder of our faith. I don't, I don't do this often, but the, the, the Greek word here is really interesting because depending on what translation you grew up reading, you might have seen it translated in a wide variety of ways. The Greek word is archegos, and it can be translated as founder, but also pioneer, or author, or initiator, or trailblazer, originator, the ruler, the leader, the beginning. I like the word instigator. It can be translated in a wide variety of ways. Here, here's, here's what this means. Jesus goes first. Jesus goes first. If you want to think in terms of a race to be, to be run, the only reason that you can even run the race is because Jesus went first. Jesus is the, the alpha. He's the author. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that goes where no man has gone before, all right? Star Trek nerds, right? He is the one who has who has absolutely blazed a trail for us. We could not even run the race if it weren't for the work of Jesus Christ. We're, that's, what I, that's what I mean by grace. Yes, we're called to run the race, but you have to recognize the fact that you're standing on the track getting ready to run was a sheer act of God's grace. Because if it was up to us, we'd be sitting outside, you know, just kind of picking our ears and sitting on the sidewalk or something, right? Jesus is the, the author, the founder of our faith. And... Number two, he's the perfecter of our faith. Also, another really interesting word, it, it's related to the word telos in the Greek, which, which means the goal or the finish line or the completion. This perfecter of our faith means 
he, he's the one that finished. He got all the way to the end. He made it. He made it all the way to, you know, mile 26.2. He's finished the race. He's completed it. He's actually done all of the work necessary. So not only, friends, get this, not only is he the trailblazer, the initiator of the race, but he's the finisher of the race. Not only are you invited onto the race course because of the work that he did, but you're guaranteed that it's going to be all right. You're guaranteed a finishing spot. Why? Because he's already done it. He's already completed the race. He's already run the race. He's already won the race. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he shouted out those words. It is finished. The work is done. That's the third thing we see here, that he, he shed his blood on the cross. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is how he has pioneered the race. This is how he has finished the race. He shed his blood on the cross. Friends, there is no Christian life without a cross. There is no ability to pursue relationship with God if it were not for the cross of Jesus Christ. I cannot overstate the importance of this, that Jesus laid down his life. He shed his blood on the cross, taking a punishment for our sins taking a penalty that you and I deserve, taking a, a beating and a death that we incurred because of our rebellion against God. Jesus did none of that. And yet he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He, he shed his blood for us. The author of Hebrews says he, he took on the cross, he says that he despised the shame he despised the shame. You think of a, of a loser in a, in a, in a, in a contest, a, a sporting match of some sort, right? The loser. We, we even have songs about it in our culture, right? You've got mud on your face, a big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, right? The words of the great theologian Freddie Mercury. We, we celebrate that, right? Ha! You're a loser. We are the champions. No time for losers, right? That's, that's the way of the world, isn't it? That's the way of the world. Well, here's Jesus on the cross. The Bible's talking this big game about how he's the, the author and the finisher of the race. He's the perfecter of our faith. But, but when you look at him, he's up there on the cross. He looks like he's losing. It looks like he's in the position of great shame. It says that people, as they walked by, they, they mocked him. They hurled insults at him. They spit upon him. Jesus was literally stripped naked, nailed to this Roman cross. How could this possibly be the great victory? Well, that's because, you know, it's, it's kind of like judo. Satan threw the hardest punch he could at Jesus. Jesus took it, and then in a great reversal, used that moment on the cross to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, to defeat death, securing our victory once and for all. Is that good news to anyone? And then, as if that wasn't enough, number five, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. This means, first of all, this means there was a resurrection. Guess what? Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose on the third day. Friends, we do not follow a dead religious founder. We serve a living Savior, one who is present with us right now, even in this room. Our Savior is alive. But then he ascended 
into heaven, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That, that word seated is so important because, again, it reinforces the idea that the work is finished. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and now today he's making intercession for us. And if you imagine yourself in that Colosseum, not the one with the jeering crowds and the Roman emperor, but we're in the one with the cheering crowds of the saints, and there is our king, Jesus, the king of all kings, the emperor of all emperors, the lord of all lords, sitting in the crowds with them saying, I've already won the race, you run, the, guarantee, the end is guaranteed. Is that encouraging to anybody? This is a silly analogy. It doesn't really work, but it's, it's, almost, like, it's almost like you're gonna get to go in to a basketball game. It's the fourth quarter. There's two minutes left. The score is literally 986 to zero. And Jesus has scored all of those points single-handedly. And he says, okay, you get to go play for a few minutes here. You feel free to like maybe take some shots. <laughs> feel free to run. Like the score is like a thousand to nothing, right? We're just gonna play for a couple minutes and then enjoy and and run hard and um, try a half-court shot. I don't know. I mean, you're, when, you, when you understand that the, the end is guaranteed, you're a lot more free, aren't you? So as Christians, the end is guaranteed. You are going to stand before God one day and he is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my reward. It's a done deal. Not because of your works, but because of the works of Jesus. So you guess what? You're now free to follow him with abandon. You're now free to take a shot or two, aren't you? To try some things that you maybe be a little bit intimidated in your own strength. Well, is this gonna be okay? Is this gonna be good? You know what? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. See where he leads you. See where he takes you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the highest place of glory and honor. Once he was clothed in rags, but now he is clothed in light itself. Once he was mocked by men, and now all creation praises him. Once he had a crown of thorns placed on his head, and now he wears a golden crown, and he sits in heaven itself, and he is not only cheering you on, but he is empowering you to run the race itself. Set before you. I love that. I love that truth. And here's, here's if, if that's not exciting or encouraging enough, get this, the joy of Jesus. It says that the joy that was set before him, um, okay, again, using this analogy of, of going to train or going to work out, just be honest, those of you who go to the gym, there are days where you walk into the gym, you're like, I'm at the gym, right? Not a lot of joy, not a lot of delight in, yay, elliptical, right, whatever it might be. The Bible tells us that Jesus did what he did. He ran this race, this grueling race, this painful and heartbreaking race for joy. He ran it for joy. What was that joy? What is the joy in? What's the delight in? What is, what is making Jesus so happy? What is making Jesus so joyful? Well, most scholars and commentators and, and pastors kind of boil it down to two things. The first one is this, the joy of glorifying his father. Jesus says things like, God, it's my joy to, to, to bring you glory and you've glorified me and I glorify you. I, he says, I and my father are one. He wants people to see the glory of his father. What Jesus did, he did to show us what God is like. It's been said, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He did it for the joy of glorifying his father and he also did it for the joy of saving many brothers and sisters. When you think about Jesus going to the cross to die in your place for your sins, 
do you see Jesus with folded arms and furrowed brows saying, I guess if that's what I have to do to save these rascals? Or do you see Jesus with a smile on his face, a, a twinkle in his eye, a, a, a spring in his steps, and I am going to rescue and redeem a lot of people through my death and through my resurrection. I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. Right now, as you think about Jesus, do you see Jesus with delight in his eyes? When you think about running your race, is there joy? Is there joy in saying no to sin? Is there joy in saying yes to what God has called you to? Do you have joy, my friends? Don't settle for anything less than joy. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, he said this, Jesus had a motive in all that he did. Men do not do much if they act from mere feeling and have no underlying design. Indeed, a life without an object must be a frivolous and useless life. Jesus had before him the great joy of glorifying the Father in the salvation of his chosen. For this he lived and for this he died. It was a joy to him to think of accomplishing this object. Beloved, if you want to run your race aright, it must be for the glory of God and in the hope of salvation of your fellow men. Look at how how Spurgeon ties it together. This is what Jesus did. This is what we're called to. These two things blended into one must be your joy. Oh, that this motive took possession of our entire being. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Let it be my chief end, even as it was my Lord's. Friends, do you want God to receive glory from your life? Do you want God to receive more glory from your life going forward than has been in the past? Friends, do you want to see those who are lost, who don't know Jesus, who don't know his saving grace, do you want to see them saved? Do you delight in those things? Do those drive you? We cannot be about playing church. We cannot be about gathering together on a Sunday and having a feel-good ceremony. We cannot be about gathering together in our weekly community groups and just patting each other on the back and playing Monopoly and eating nachos. There's nothing wrong with Monopoly and nachos, but God's called us to something greater. There's a great race he's called us to, a great participation with what Jesus has done to bring glory to God and to see a lot of people get saved. Friends, does that excite you? Does that drive you? Does that give you some joy in your heart, the same joy that Jesus has? Let me just close with this thought. As we've gone through the book of Hebrews, there have been some complicated passages, amen? This is not one of them. This is not one of them. This is an easy passage to deduce, It's right there. Friends, if you're a Christian, run hard. Run with joy. Why? Because Jesus has already secured the victory and it's a foregone conclusion. Jesus wins. Amen? And if you are here today and you're not a Christian, I love you and I want to invite you into the greatest pursuit that you could ever give your life to. Don't settle for temporary earthly pursuits, things that are here today and gone tomorrow and certainly do not last into eternity. Give your life to Jesus, trust in him, be invited into this great thing called the Christian life, the great thing called the pursuit of Jesus and watch him shape you, watch him change you, watch him grow you. Friends, let's run our race. Let's follow Jesus, let's pursue him because he has done everything needed for salvation, amen? God is good. Let's, let's respond to Jesus now. We're gonna respond as we do in a variety of ways. The first way is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, 
No obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like, but this is something that we're going to do as worship. We're gonna do this as worship, joyful worship to God. I just encourage you, let this be an act of joy. Let this be a cheerful act, as the Bible says. And as we give, let me read a few discussion questions, things to help us as we have conversations this week in our community groups and in our homes. How do the examples of faithful men and women in the past inspire and encourage you? <clears throat> and do you live with this awareness of a great cloud of witnesses? Number two, what sin, uh-oh, we're getting real here, what sin is weighing you down that you need to confess, repent of, and leave behind for good? And who are the people that God wants you to share this with today? Do not delay. If God is calling you to open up and to be vulnerable, please do it. Is it risky? Yes. Is it scary? Yes. But I'm telling you, the life and the freedom that's found from walking in confession and repentance of sin is so worth it. Number three, how is Jesus calling you to follow him with greater passion and conviction? And number four, how encouraging is it to know that Jesus has already won the race on our behalf? How does this truth free you to follow him with joyful endurance? And then some things to pray about because we desire to be a people of prayer, amen? Please pray these things. Pray that God would help us each to run the race set before us with endurance and with joy. Pray that God would give you opportunities to encourage someone else in their race and pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those in your life. And as we continue our time of response, we're gonna respond through a celebration of the Lord's table of communion. I'll invite you to hold on to these elements for a minute. We'll take them together here. But this is a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, that, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out on the cross, and that in this simple representation, the simple bread and this juice, is a picture of the greatest victory in the history of the world, Jesus defeating sin and death. And as you take this today, I, I, I ask you just to pray, God, would you help me? to see the, the race as already won by grace and by grace alone? And would you help me to run hard and to follow hard because our, our great King Jesus has called me to run my race? I'll encourage you to, to take uh, the bread and the wine to celebrate it uh, as, you're, as you're led and as you want to. Maybe if you wanna pray together for a minute with your spouse or with your friends or with community group, whoever's near, maybe you just wanna hold quietly on your own for a minute. And then I'm gonna encourage you to stand and to sing and to celebrate and rejoice. Sean and, and the team are gonna lead us in a time of singing and celebrating our great King Jesus. Would you join with me in prayer, friends? God, we love you and we desire to follow you wholeheartedly with passion, with joy. God, would you forgive us for the times where we allow apathy and laziness to seize hold of our hearts? God, would you remind us of the truth of the gospel that we're, we're saved by grace and grace alone. You have done all of the work necessary for our salvation, Lord Jesus, and it's because of that that we can run this race with joy and with passion and with endurance. God, for those of us who are feeling weary in our race, would you strengthen us? For those of us who are feeling joyless, would you put joy into our heart through your Holy Spirit by reminding us of the gospel? And God, may we sing and celebrate and rejoice in Jesus right now. And it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen.